Hi, this is Chastity Melvin, host of the God's Child Podcast, and today my featured guest is Natasha Scruggs. That's right, she is a criminal attorney, and she believes in prison abolition, and she's an anti-racist lawyer. Natasha, thanks for joining my podcast today. I'm glad to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, this is a huge deal for me. The fact that I've been looking you up and finding out all your media outlets that you've been doing over the years, this is big for me. This is huge. So thank you for having me. I've been following you throughout the pandemic and you have enlightened me. You have informed me about tickets, misdemeanors, felonies, and how that has affected the Black community so much. We're almost had to go to jail because my license were suspended and I didn't know it here in Georgia. And I mean, I had the ability and the, the money to get a lawyer and get that situation take, taken care of in less than a day. But I know a lot of other people in my culture don't have those means. Atlanta is kind of, is very um, known for that. Like the municipal court, it used to be so packed with traffic ticket cases and traffic warrants that people don't know about. I actually worked there for like six months um, during my last semester of law school because I thought I was going to be licensed there. And um, I had like a, a student license and that's when I saw it. it was crazy. That plus the, the homeless population out there, it's, it's a bunch of stuff going on in Atlanta. Grandparents basically kept all of us and made sure that we were good. Education is like, you knew you were going to go to college. That wasn't even a question. He went to St. Augustine and he, he was selling like encyclopedias. So he had like all of these encyclopedia collections and he wouldn't like this is before Google. If we asked grandpa a question, he's like, go look it up. So we would have to look it up in the encyclopedia. And that's, that's kind of like the foundation for why I always, I want to know what all these words mean. I want to know why, why something is the way that it is. I don't just take stuff at like face value. Speaking of your grandfather selling encyclopedias, I'm sure he was one of the guys that sold Encyclopedia Britannica to my family. <laughs> I'm big on education and we grew up the same way. Oh like, my those, God. Yeah, that like, we had Encyclopedia Britannicas and that was our Google. Just, I like sharing my story and hearing other people's story and casting light on situations with love. So we're gonna cast some love on the situation of fact that affects the black culture in general. Let's get to this prison abolition. So are you like my modern day Angela Davis? Come on, tell me like, <laughs> what's the deal here? Because Natasha, I want killers and murder. I want them in jail. I grew up wanting to, aren't the bad guys supposed to go to jail? And so then I had to realize that the people that they were calling the bad guys weren't just, you know, bad guys in a vacuum. You know, they weren't just villains. They all had uh, a story and they all had situations and circumstances that helped breed this type of activity. And another thing I realized was basically the statistics about crime and the crime rate and criminals and things like that is all screwed up. When it comes to what the criminal justice system is supposed to do is if they say it's supposed to stop crime it doesn't stop crime okay. crime rate has been the same even though the prison rate has went up like 700 percent prisoning more people the crime rate is the same the victims aren't being helped people aren't being rehabilitated the recidivism rate is like 70 percent so when I say we want to abolish prisons, I'm saying I want to abolish a system that's not working, a system that's not helping anybody on either side. So you want to see a more 
transformation of the prison system. Yes. What I like to start with is I, I call it the domino of oppression. People, quote unquote, committing crimes is on the end. But I want to start with all these dominoes that fell, like millions of dominoes that fell that led to these crimes. Because a lot of crimes are crimes of poverty. First internship when I was in law school was at a juvenile court. And that was the hardest thing to see literal kids in handcuffs built to be like a cycle of people in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. Starting with kids, starting with like eight-year-olds. Aging out and going to prison. The the way that the system is right now, it's not functioning the way that it's marketed to function. I I just feel like the criminal justice system has a good PR. (laughs) Like it looks good, but if you actually go on the inside, you're like, oh no, this ain't it, this is not it. That brings me to my next point about at-risk youth. Why would you want to change the language of at-risk youth? Because immediately when I hear these are going to be the bad, negative kids. According to every single statistic there is, I was I was an at-risk youth. All the kids at my 98% Black high school were at-risk youth. And what they did was they're giving us a title. Like they're already stigmatizing us before we even have a chance to like it's victim blaming. Because all we yeah. did was this. And, this. and the education system is at risk of failing kids like me. Where are these schools failing at-risk kids? Is it because of their, they're defunding the public school system? Well, that's one of the biggest things. Like in Missouri, the governor, even in the middle of a pandemic, he, he defunded our public schools by $133 million. Wow. And yes. First people to get, to get cut are always public schools. And the public school system is something that the Black community relies on heavily and it's not fair. We made do. We made it do what it do. When That's I got what our culture does. <laughs> right. our culture makes it do what it do. Okay. Yeah. Then yeah. when I went when I went to college and I was talking to some of my friends and I was like, what kind of high school y'all went to? That sounded like Harvard. Like it didn't sound like they were going to a regular high school and it wasn't a private school. So I'm like, why are some Missouri public schools and some Missouri and other Missouri public schools so vastly different? Like property values and things like that which we could go back to like redlining and all of this. It, 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 it all it all kind of goes all the way back to the dominoes of a press state. You went to Jackson State, right? Am I correct? Right. So I went to Missouri Southern for two years and I actually played basketball there. What? Okay. Got a hoop yeah. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Okay. It was only four black girls on the team, which I for us being black girls, and I know you probably understand this heavily, but dealing with the microaggressions from from my coaches and dealing with that from my teammates, it was hard. And I was studying criminal justice and it was just, I was like, that's the one thing. I never quit anything in my life, but I told them, I was like, I'm not coming back this year. Like I'm done. And I majored in communications, North Carolina State University. Mm-hmm. And he spoke to me about what were my challenges when I was in college. And I totally agree. It was just like, when you went there, especially to all white university, it's like, oh, you only got here because of your scholarship. You know, they look at you like you're dumb and uneducated. I probably wouldn't have finished if I was majoring in criminal justice and I really understood what was going on, but I majored in communication. I don't feel any qualms about that because I, I, I feel, I tell people every day, on your road to success, if you are being like humiliated or you feel like things just aren't right and you don't have to deal with an embarrassed situation to leave, 
Right. My brother went to the school. So my brother's experience as a black man on the on the basketball team is totally different than my experience. <laughs> I, I steered you away, but let's get back to going to Jackson, um, Jackson State. Okay. Excited to go to an HBCU, which like I told you, my high school was 98% black and that's where I felt comfortable. So I graduated. I got into law school my junior year of uh, high of um, college. After graduating from law school, you started the Scrubs firm. Yeah. Well, it was a little detour. <laughs> Tell me about that detour. Woo! The podcast about inspiration. Um, my last year of law school, my mother, who was 43 years old at the time, had a pulmonary embolism and a stroke. So at the age of 25, I became a caretaker. So I never thought that I would be that. This is what my life is supposed to be. What is going on? If you make a plan, it's going to happen. But what I learned was God gave me the strength that I didn't think I could I could have. I, the rest of my classmates are just living their regular lives. I did not pass the bar my first year. And I started the law firm until a year and a half later because it took me a year and a half to pass the bar and to get my family together. I was questioning God and questioning. Mom worked her whole life for us. Like why she got to suffer? It taught me, number one, to not focus on the outcomes, to not be attached to, to outcomes and to just focus on the process. When you in the valley, the only thing you can do is pray. Like if you don't have, you know, you don't have no control. You don't have, I, I didn't have nothing. I was, I was, my last four years, four months of law school, I was sleeping in a bed, in a chair next to my mama bed in the hospital, writing my papers. And I'm like, is this my life? Social media is a great platform, but it also, it's kind of like PR. Like you see everything out here, but you don't know how we got here or how we made it. This is the God's Child Podcast. I'm your host, Chastity Melvin, and I'm sure uh, our featured guest is Natasha Scruggs. For habitual offenders, does the three strike rule affect them as well? Like as habitual offenders? Yeah, in that in, in certain areas it does. Um in habitual offenders is I feel like it's a tool. It's it was a it was a racist tool when it first started, especially when three strikes started. Um, basically, when somebody gets out, they have like a probationary period where they can't do anything, and that that includes getting pulled over for a traffic thing, for a traffic issue, and that's the problem. It's like it, the the rules and the regulations that people who are formerly incarcerated have. The average person couldn't pass that. People go right back to jail because it's very hard to meet those standards billion things that can go wrong for you to get pulled over yeah. in today's world i can see that happening and so do you agree with the three strike rules in your practice how has it affected you and helped your clients i don't agree with it or any variations of it like they call it habitual offenders because something that like i said like i had a client who had a dui that was i think 12 years ago but they decided, I mean, he had maybe two or three of them, but it was it was like 12 years ago. The mother, his child dropped his kids off at his house and he freaked out. He didn't think and started driving. And, and the police corroborate this because they went to his house and let the kids in. So this one day, this one decision that he made would have just been, okay, you go in, you do a class or something, you get out. But because they tagged him with that habitual offender, he was facing 15 years wow. in prison. So it, 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 these enhance, they call them enhancements and things. It's all these cute terms for um, just keeping people down, keep pushing people down. Because people don't really ask about that. The three strikes rule is, is one of the most inhumane 
things because it's it, it's prejudging people and it's keeping them of um, criminals or felons or cons because you're putting them you're giving them a title when really yeah. it was just one thing that happened. We don't have to keep them in that category for the rest of their lives. And and that's what that's my problem with the criminal justice system. I believe that it, it created a subculture of American society where before it used to be like white only signs and this and that, and they could discriminate against you because of your race. But now if you check that box, it says, I, I was an offender, no matter if it was 20 years ago. And then guess what? They can still uh, discriminate against you because of it. Next question is marijuana and it becoming legal. What are your thoughts on that? And how does it affect our culture? Definitely should be legalized because uh, the number one drug, the number one marijuana users and marijuana dealers are white people. The face of, of marijuana is black people because we are the ones who have been heavily policed and surveilled to the point where they arrest us more for it and we go to prison more for it. We we have longer prison sentences, harsher, harsher charges. You go to a white college, you never see the police raiding like these white college parties. I was there, they didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> they never but did it. <laughs> they don't. But the racial disparities, it I don't see the point of having it um, to be illegal. Um, also, it reminds me of when alcohol was illegal, which was back back in the day. It's gonna be more, it's gonna be more crimes. It's gonna be more violence and things like that because it's a subculture. They take it from underground. But I don't like the new legalization movement because the movement that I see right now is the government wants to just make money from legalization, but yes. it doesn't want to. It doesn't want to release the people, the millions of people that are in federal and state prisons because yeah, of marijuana. This is the new way pushing, okay, marijuana is legal now. Let's open up dispensaries. Let's make this money. But no one saying, okay, we're opening this dispensary, but we're also going to raise money or raise funds to make sure that those that have been in prison because of marijuana, we do to you know make that a new wave. I, I think every single last one of them should be free, like indiscriminately, because there's people that are serving 20 years to 25 years because of weed. Like it's very, very serious. They had it higher than like heroin. These states that are trying to legalize it, they're telling us that it should be legal because of the income that can help the state. However, black people, not only the incarcerated black people, but the black people on the outside are not having any access to it. In Missouri, you gotta have 100K in your bank, capital, in order to get, get you one of these licenses. And then you gotta have property. So you're talking about getting bank loans, which black people have been discriminated against, and getting property, which black people have been discriminated against. Or they've, getting, or they've gotten their land taken from them. Illegally. Exactly, exactly. Every time people try to come up, it gets taken, hip, white owned, you know, dispensary keeps popping up and they want me to clap, give it, give it claps and say how awesome that is. It's not awesome to me because I understand why they have the opportunity to do that. My community does not have the opportunity to do that. Plus there are people that are in jail right now because of it. So I, I actually hate seeing all that hipster, you know, oh, we have a new type of, because that's sick to me to have some people literally behind bars in a cage for the same thing that they are celebrating and making hip and making cool. 
so my father has a little bit of land and i'm trying to tell him if north carolina opens it up can we do a dispensary but my father is a minister and he was totally oh my gosh i thought lightning was going to strike me down you, you mentioned something earlier about when alcohol was illegal and my grandmothers were uh they had the bootleg jean the juke joint right um, so, they made liquor illegal. Said, I'm glad you pointed that out. It's the same thing that's happening with marijuana. Okay, yeah. we put enough black people in jail for it now. Now we can make it legal. And also, like kind of like what you're saying, your grand your grandparents did. Black people made a lot of money during prohibition. The people who did get into that world um, while it was illegal, and they started to see that. You know, they started to see that. It's just like gambling. Think about yep. it. They had, like you said, the juke joint, you could do all of these things. Now the state decided, okay, well, they're making a lot of money. So how about we legalize that and tax it and build casinos and then make, and then so now they can use alcohol. It's basically the same thing. Like when, when uh, marijuana becomes legal and when all the black people get out of jail, we'll then have that opportunity to build real wealth off of that we would just like the same thing that you said about the about the alcohol but the same thing that happened with the alcohol they made these certain regulations and things i'm not saying it's impossible but it's barriers that's all i'm saying it's barriers oh, yeah. to it I, I believe that like you said people with land like my family got land most black people's grandparents uh, or parents have some sort of land somewhere but it's in a it could be in an undeveloped space but like you said, if we can strategize and make some make some plans, you can you can do some some good stuff with that. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll let you talk to my dad about that, Natasha. <laughs> Natasha, it's been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have Natasha Scruggs of the Scruggs Law Firm out in Missouri. Natasha, we're going to switch lanes a little bit before we get into that other lane. What advice would you give people that are pursuing a career path along your side, dealing with criminal, you know, criminal law? I would give is to kind of set aside time maybe at least once a week if not more to do your own independent research because everything you see is not always everything you get so try to develop your own theories on things and get the theory right first then once you get into law school which there is a whole process and I do, I do do coaching for people who want to do that. And I do a law camp for kids that want to be lawyers. Because I do believe we should have more black lawyers. Right now, we only have 5% of all lawyers are black. I basically think that if you're trying to go on this path, as long as you have your own theory, you know what's going on, you're grounded, and you make like a vision board and you take the steps every single day, you're going to do it. So I believe in anybody who wants to be a lawyer. I feel like the process is so much more important than the outcome. You know, anybody can do well when everything is good and the bottles is popping and everything's sweet. But when it's not, that's when your character comes out. See, I didn't know that you had to build character. And I didn't know that you had to build self-esteem. I thought, I just thought I had it. But I found yeah. out. Every single day that I take a step, that I open my book, that I read, that I, uh, you know, help my mama, that I do this, I was like, okay, I know I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, I fell at the bar two times and I was like, what's going on? I was forcing it. I was like, okay, let me hurry up and do this. I didn't think I had to change anything. And as soon as I said, honestly, as soon as I let it go and put it in God's hands, I knew that third time, that was it. That was it. You were like that three strikes I'm out. So God, that's gotta be it. <laughs> Confidence and character of the Scruggs firm. 
what you do, how you carry yourself on social media when it comes to dating. Uh, that Natasha boy, she's a brick house. Yeah, <laughs> in the position you're in, the challenges that present itself with how you carry yourself and how you put yourself out there on social media as it as it affects your job. Yeah, that was that was so hard because I was like, I was 25 when I graduated, and I was like, I'm looking at everybody else that's 25, <laughs> and I'm like, I can't do that. I can't do everything that everybody else does on social media. My thing was, I'm in a profession that is a that is a white male dominated profession and I was like well I'm not going to transform into an old white man <laughs> so that's the le- that's what professionalism looks like it looks like an old white man I'm a 25 year old black girl so what am I about to do so I had to figure that out it was very difficult to try to find my way and I still question when I put certain things up because I know that it's a lot of scrutiny on us. Um, But one thing that I try to maintain is, like I said, I know my character. I know I pray every day. I know I meditate every day. I just know I have a routine and and I just decide to trust it. So I go with my gut with a lot of things that I post. Counsel. I do seek counsel about my image a lot. Black women need more support in that area, especially when it comes to social media. We don't only exist. I know a lot of the world thought that Black women only existed in in whatever box they put them in, but we're multifaceted. Tasha, the goddess out on social media, platform, you're in a male-dominated society, and you have a job where everyone has their perception of what you're making. (laughs) You know, they have this huge perception of how much money you're making and um, what you do. How has that affected your dating life? I don't tell people that I'm an attorney when I meet them, but they can look me up because I'm a public figure. <laughs> Girl, so you don't tell people you're an attorney? No, but they always find out. Like they literally look me up. And I don't know how, cause my last name is not even on the dating app. So I just have Natasha. <laughs> so what I, but I will tell them, I'll say, oh, I'm in the legal field, but I'm, I'm basically trying to act like I'm just a secretary. So then they'll be like, well, where are you from? Oh, I work at a law firm. And then they want to know, like, which law firm? I'm like, oh, it's the Scruggs Law Firm. It's me. <laughs> Dealt with men who actually really love me, really adore me, right? But it isn't, but in their defense, they're intimidated by, by me. Because I am a lot as far as, like, like you said, my image, my profession, things like that. You know, you know the insecurities, like, that I have to deal with. I hate that. People are insecure when they see you at a certain level that they don't see themselves at. Even though I see the kings and queens of everybody. So them say, oh, you got the money, huh? Or you do this. I can't even talk to them. You have to change in order to have what you want as far as that life partner, someone that respects all levels. What what, what strategy have you come up with? Or you're just praying that, you know, it's going to happen? My strategy is honestly to just be open to dating. Like I'm like, all I say is I'm open. You know, and I say that I want to have um, positive dating experiences. Strategy too, even though I don't want to go on a date, I'm gonna go on a date. I'm gonna go on yeah, a date. Yeah, you gotta get it. You got COVID has made that challenging, but yeah, you gotta be open. Great. Natasha, listen, we're gonna end the show. Each kind of question scenario out there: is your humbling moment, your heartbreak story, your happiest moment, or your headache moment. And your headache moment is like your pain in your side, like Paul always had this thorn in his side. 
So you can mm. just answer one of those. Happiest story. My happiest moment was when I got sworn in for the boss, sworn in to be a lawyer by my black judge boss that at the time with my mama and my two siblings on the side. That was the day. And then my second happiest moment was when my brother passed the bar. <laughs> Joy at seeing the fruits of my labor materialize. Like once I, cause I put it on, I put it on my vision board. Like the sacrifices that I made in order to be a caretaker was because my brother had just got accepted to law school. So my older brother, he probably would have been doing more, but he's like, he got to go to law school. I don't want him to drop out like my grandpa. So I'm thinking all these things. And then we we did it. Like we made it. This is Chastity Mel, my host of the God's Child Podcast. Thank you so much, Natasha, for coming on. And uh, everyone, make sure you go follow her social media. Every Everywhere, every platform is what, Natasha? Natasha M. Scruggs. Got you. Thank you again so much and have a good night.